Okay, good morning, everyone. Yeah, it's good to be back here. Um, again, it's a beautiful day, friends. Thanks for joining us online. This morning, we're going to continue our Christianity 101 sermon series that Tommy and I have been going through over the past six weeks. And as you know, we've been going through the book of Romans, uh, two chapters a week, which is uh, challenging in itself. There's a lot, lot to cover. But uh, if you include this morning, we've got two more weeks to go because eight weeks, 16 chapters, two a week. Um, and Tommy and I chose Romans. It's one of the 27 books in the New Testament. And it's one of, uh, Romans is one of 14 letters or epistles that are attributed to Paul. The others are 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 T Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. And these 14 books make up more than half of the New Testament. A lot, lot, of, lot of cover, a lot, lot of things that Paul, Paul wrote. So the question I'd like you to ask this morning is why Romans? Why, why are we studying Romans? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, Romans is the New Testament's longest, most structured, and most detailed description of Christianity. Hence the naming of our series, Christianity 101. And within this, Paul lays out the core, the very core and heart of the gospel, which is salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And the scripture verse that Tommy and I have been using throughout this series is Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and it reads, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. This is the good news of the gospel. And this is what, in Paul, his letter, his intent was to explain the good news of Jesus Christ in accurate and crystal clear terms. And as part of this message, as part of this letter, Paul addresses the conflicts that, that between law and grace, between Jews and Gentiles, and between sin and righteousness. And then as common in Paul's writings, he closes out his letter with a series of practical applications, how to put what he's taught to use. Now, last week, Tommy took us through chapters 11 and 12. And in chapter 12, he described the ideas of becoming a living sacrifice for Christ. And if you remember, it was all about being transformed. His message was transformation. Paul gives us certain applications, what it looks like for Christians to, uh, to have received God's great mercy. And Paul instructs believers to live in a life of submission to human authorities and government. And he says that because God has put them there for his purposes. He tells us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And it's the ongoing obligation, that obligation of love for every Christian. And then finally, as we'll be going through it, he talks about how important it is to throw off any works of darkness and put on the spiritual armor of light. And he tells us most importantly that the time has come to take on Christ and to stop arranging our lives around our own desires. Easier said than done. So Romans 13 continues the theme of that, you know, Tommy covered last week of Romans 12. And that being, how do those in Christ live now that we've received God's great mercy? You know, Paul began in Romans 12 declaring that the only reasonable response 
is for us to become living sacrifice to serve as God. And today, Romans 13 continues to describe what that living sacrifice looks like. And again, we're going to talk about specific applications. So let's jump into chapter 13. And Paul here is describing the government's legitimate authority and the Christian's response. And in verses 1 and 2, he writes, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Right here, as we begin this chapter, Paul is taking a surprising turn. Those in Christ, he's saying, must be submissive or subject to human authorities and government. In other words, what Paul is saying is that in God's kingdom, he doesn't allow us to ignore those in charge of the earthly kingdom that we live. And this isn't just about keeping the peace. We're, as Christians, called to submit to earthly authorities because God has put them in place. God's anointed those leaders. And Paul says that every position in government, every authority on earth, was ultimately filled by God himself. And he says in this verse, to resist authority is to resist God. If you remember when Jesus asked for a coin and said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what's God's. When he did that, he separated church and state. The state, like anything else, does not exist apart from God. Nothing exists apart from God. But God himself has separated the functions of the state and the church, though both are subject to his sovereign will, whether or not they know it, <clears throat> believe it, or acknowledge it. And right here in that verse, Paul is making the same statement with further application. And he's saying as long as the governing authorities aren't attempting to cause Christians to break the laws of God, we as Christians should view obeying the government as obeying God himself. And again, because he appointed them. And for an individual to understand themselves properly, their dignity as an image bearer of God and volunte voluntarily obey is crucial. And it, and it, it enables us to um, be humble in when we submit to what God's called us to do. That's exactly what Jesus did. He was humble when he said, render unto Caesar. In that verse, every soul is used. And that includes both Jews and Christians. And Paul is simply saying that we should subject to the governing authorities. This was in direct contradiction to a lot of Jews that were zealous and who recognized no king but God and paid no taxes except to God. Paul also writes, no authority except from God. No authority except from God. As I said before, God appoints the leaders. But he doesn't always do it to bless the people. Sometimes he appoints leaders to judge the people or to ripen that nation for judgment. It's important to remember that Paul wrote this during the reign of the Roman Empire. There was no democracy there. There was... The, the emperor was no special friend to Christians. And yet, Paul still saw the, their legitimate authority. Because God uses governing authorities as a checkup upon man's sinful desires. 
When you think about it, government and the law can be effective tool in resisting the effects of man's sin. And since governments have authority from God, we're called to obey them. Unless, of course, they order us to do something that contradicts what God's called us to do, what God's law is. Then we're commanded to obey God before man. Important. And as we move on to verses 3 and 4, Paul states right here, the job of government is, one of the jobs of government is to punish and deter evildoers. And he writes, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. I mean, it's clear what Paul is saying, that rejection of authority can bring painful judgment. He says God's intention for authorities in human governments, in part, is to bring them judgment on people who do bad things. So he's telling us if we do good things, we have nothing to worry about. But if we... Um, for doing bad things, we should be punished by government on God's behalf. He, he mentions in this verse to do what is good and you will have praise. You know, Paul's idea was that Christians should be the best citizens of all. We should be um, a model for everyone else. And even though they're loyal to God before they're loyal to state, Christians are, to be honest, to not cause trouble, to pay their taxes, and we're even called to pray for our leaders, to pray for our, our rulers. And Paul describes, and I love this, he describes government as God's minister. They have, he's saying that they, they're supposed to minister to the people and that they need to remember that they are only servants. They're not gods themselves. You know, throughout history, when, when we've seen um, rulers and, and almost emperors um, be put in place and then do horrific things, we've seen that with people like uh, Hitler, uh, Joseph Stalin, Saddam Hussein. And, and what they've done, the abuse of power, is, is so ungodly. How millions of people were die, died at their hands is, is just painful. And Paul is, you know... Obviously, before those tragedies happen, we, we know what happened in Rome and in other places where um, innocent people were put to death because of sinful government. Paul goes on to say, he does not bear the sword in vain. And he's talking about the rulers in power. What Paul's talking about here is, is capital punishment, which is becoming less and less in our, in our country. But back in the Roman Empire... Criminals were typically executed by beheading with a sword. Now, crucifixion, that was reserved for really heinous uh, crimes and, uh, and obviously for our, our Lord and Savior. But Paul here speaks of the Holy Spirit, the inspiration. And he's saying that the government in that day uh, has a legitimate authority to execute criminals. He's telling his, the early Christians in Rome to follow the law. He moves on in verses 5 and 7. He speaks of the Christian's responsibility toward government. 
And Paul writes, therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. And he says, render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom you should honor. Again, Paul's making it clear, we need to be subject to government, not only because of the fear punishment, because we know it's right before God. That's the most important thing. It's right before God. And we also pay the taxes because it's, a, it's, it's our calling to support the government that would support the people, God's people, our brothers and sisters. You know, when you think of taxes and customs and fear, we're to give to the state money and honor and proper reverence while reserving our right and our priority to give to God, which is all uh, due to God. <clears throat> so what do you do when human government tells you something to do that contradicts what God commands? Or when the government is not acting fairly or morally or serving the people? In that case, Paul is saying a believer is to defy ungodly commands and willingly face the consequences. Paul's instructions here speaks of subjection and submission, but not necessarily obedience. And when you think about it, that distinction, the distinction was lived out by Jesus' closest followers. Remember, nearly all the apostles were eventually killed by government authorities for preaching the gospel, for sharing God's word. And they refused to obey when they were warned to keep silent. But they submitted to the government. They accepted their punishment of the authority of God. Now that's not telling us that we should go out and defy things where we're going to get killed. But it does tell us that if we are given commands that go against God's will, that we can protest them or not necessarily you know, uh, agree with them or follow them. And I think it's important to, to heed those words of Paul. In verses 8 and 9, or 8 through 10, Paul emphasizes what a Christian's obligation is to his neighbors. To love one another. Paul writes, Oh no, oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you should not bear false witness, you shall not cover, covenant. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He wraps up by saying, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, Paul transitioned this idea that Jesus' followers should pay all their debts. The only debt that can never be repaid is the obligation to love God and love our neighbors as we love ourselves. After all, love itself never harms anyone. Paul says that making all other relationships and all other commands unnecessary. If we look back in, in Matthew, uh, verse 22, or ch chapter 22, verses 33, 36 through 40, uh, Jesus has asked, Teacher, 
Which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus replies, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, On these two commandments hang all of the law of the prophets. Friends, love your neighbor means to love the people you actually don't like. <laughs> the people that you meet and have to deal with every day. I mean, it's easy for us to love people who are our brothers and sisters and are nice to us and so forth. But God commands us to love everyone. He says that love is the fulfillment of the law. You know, it's easy to do a lot of the right things or the like Christian things, the right things. But to, if we neglect love, we're missing the boat. Because Paul says that love is the true measure of our obedience to God. Friends, it's all about love. And as we move on, you know, Paul says in verses 11 through 14, he's urging Christians on the urgency to love and walk right with God. He says, and do this, knowing the time that now is the high time to awake out of a sleep. For now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent and the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's lust. Paul's writing about the urgency of time. He says that the night is gone and the day is here. And he's suggesting that the day of the Lord, the date of uh, judgment, the metaphorical daybreak, that the moment draws near every day. Friends, none of us know when the rapture is going to occur. None of us know when, when Jesus is going to come again. In fact, none of us know when our last day on this in this life will be. But one thing we do know, every day that passes, we're a day closer to every one of those things. So it's important that we, we take... Um, we take the knowledge that Paul is sharing. He's, he's telling us the moment grows nearer. And that we, he's calling us to throw off works of darkness. And again, he says that that includes drunken partying, sexual immorality, fighting, jealousy. He says that Christians must put on the armor of light instead of joining darkness. And he's telling us to take defensive positions against it. The reference to the armor of light is Jesus himself. We're to put on Jesus Christ. As Christians, we're to act the way, uh, the example that Jesus said. He's saying that we should be more energetic and committed to a right walk with God instead of a sleepwalk. You know, the reality is many of us as Christians can do a, you know, a lot of the right things. And yet we could still be considered asleep um, for God. And it's important for every Christian to make sure they're awake and active. Not only coming to church, but being part of small groups, as Tommy said, you know, helping out neighbors, serving others, being a good parent, good brother, sister, son, daughter. It's not a one day a week thing. It's everything. And that's what we're, we're called to do. When Paul writes, make no provision for the flesh, he's saying that 
the flesh is going to be as active as we allow it to be. <clears throat> Throughout history, there have been examples of that. You know, and amazingly, God used the passage, this very passage in Romans, to show Augustine, the great theologian of the early church, that he could live the Christian life as empowered by the Holy Spirit. All he had to do, as Nike would say, was just do it. And the reality is, that's the same thing for us. We just need to do it. So now we, trans we transition into chapter 14, because here Paul turns from the black and white instructions about light and darkness that we saw in Romans 13 to the issue of disputable matters that have the potential to divide the entire church. And Paul instructs those who feel free to flaunt their newfound freedom regarding the old commandments of, of Jewish dietary and, and traditions. Um, new, new, the, the early Christians in Rome don't have to follow them. And Paul is warning them. He's talking to the early Christians, and he's saying, you need to accept those, those folks. Um, if they're doing what they believe is right, they're doing it for the Lord. For the Lord. Romans 14, he, tax, he tackles an, you know, what I believe is a really important issue. And it's very relevant to the church today. Because many decisions in Christian life don't come with an absolute yes or no. On the major issues, God's word is crystal clear. But on less important subjects, Christians at times might find, a find in fact, we do find uh, often, that we need to agree to disagree. And, and to do that respectfully creates the unity that Paul is telling us we need right here in this, in this passage. He's writing for those that are in Christ. He's saying that some actions are clearly right, and that includes setting ourselves aside in love and service and submitting to the human authorities and the government. But then he says other things are clearly wrong. Sexual immorality, jealousy, drunkenness, dishonesty. But in between right and wrong, there are things that can be debated. And for the Roman believers, this debate mostly concerned the rules and restrictions, again, of the law of Moses. Those in Christ were freed from following in those rules. But doubt still lingered. Is it right to eat meat that might be not, that's not kosher, um, according to the law? Is it right to observe certain days like the Jewish festivals and the Sabbath? So these are the things that Paul's talking about. And in verses 1 and 2, he's telling us not to judge each other in doubtful things. He writes, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. It's a metaphor what he's talking about. He's dividing the church into two groups based on the response to these questions. There are those who are fully, fully convinced that because of God's grace, they're now free to eat and drink anything they want. Nothing isn't clean to them because God put it all on our planet. Then there are believers who Paul is calling comparatively weak in their faith, who still feel that they need to follow these dietary restrictions, and they think that um, what Christians may be doing is wrong. If we're eating meat that's not kosher, for instance. You know, as Paul refers to these uh, 
concerned believers, weak in faith. He's instructing the Christians. He's instructing those that are strong and free to welcome them. That's part of fellowship. Because they may be less assured, they ought to be fully and completely accepted by the church as opposed to being put aside. Because this was the division that was happening back in the early days of Rome. And Paul warns us about spiritual maturity. And he says it's a requirement for fellowship. And that we shouldn't distinguish between someone who is weak in their faith versus someone who is strong. And the picture that Paul paints is a picture for all of us that we all need to coexist as brothers and sisters in unity and peace. And friends, when you think about where we are in this country, over the last decade, this country has been divided based on what we believe socially, morally. We've, we've become, um, the divide has become so great. And what Paul is saying, all those things, no, ma no matter how important we may read or see or whatever, they're all small things that really matters is that we're brothers and sisters in Christ and that we're called for peace and unity. As we move to chapters uh, 3 and 9, Paul is exhorting. He's, he's telling people not to judge our brother or sister because we're not their masters, which back then a lot of people thought that they were holier than now, that they were superior. And Paul writes, the one who eats everything must not treat with content the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand and fall. And they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day the same. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind because whoever regards one day as special is doing so for the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so for the Lord and gives thanks to God. Paul says, for none of us, for none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. So if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so they might be there, both the, the Lord of both the dead and the living. You know, Paul's saying that neither group should pass judgment on the other. God has welcomed both groups into his family. And he's telling us, how dare you, how dare you put anyone aside, put anyone down. Because there's only one master, and that's the Lord who's master of everyone. Each person needs to be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt on these issues, and that they need to honor the Lord and give thanks to God. And this goes for both the abstainers and the consumers, both the observers of, of days and those who do not. Paul's saying that whatever we do, we need to honor the Lord because everything and all of us in Christ belong to him. You know, there's a lot of useless and harmful division among Christians over silly things. Lots. Paul isn't telling these Christians to erase our differences. He tells them to rise above them as Christians 
and his brothers and sisters. And that, that message resonates with us today. It's so easy to get caught up in things that could divide us that we really need to focus on, on God's word. That's crystal clear in Romans. In verses 10 through, 10, 10 through 12, Paul writes, You then, why do you judge your brother and sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will be acknowledged. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. He writes this, and still the group des described as stronger faith Christians cannot flaunt their freedom. And they shouldn't. He tells them, stop it. You know, carefully choosing to eat and drink risks harm to others. Instead, we're told to set aside our, our differences and our freedom, and we need to promote peace and unity. He's telling us that that's how you could build up the church instead of tearing it down. In other words, merely having the freedom to do something doesn't give us the right to tear others down. It's better not to do anything or say anything that causes another Christian to stumble rather than pass judgment onto someone else or by encouraging someone to do something that they don't believe in. So his message, when it comes to deciding whether we're to exercise our freedom to eat and drink, that was once forbidden. He's saying if someone believes something is unclean, meaning their conscience cannot accept it or partake in it, then it's unclean to them and we need to accept that. And if we violate their conscience, if we make them stumble or make them feel guilty about what they believe in, Paul is saying that's a sin. Then he goes on in, in the chapter in verses 13 through 21 to say, I know. And I'm convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it's unclean. Yet, if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. And therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things for which we can and may edify another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it's evil for the man who eats with offense. It's good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended, is made weak. You know, Paul's telling us what's real important here. You know, he's saying that if you've got tighter conviction, and, and he's labeling people that, that are clinging to those old ways as weaker, he's saying to Christians, don't have the authority to put restrictions on others. To accept, that's the Christian thing to do, is to accept others. And in life, too, we might not agree with everyone's opinion. In fact, we don't agree with everyone's opinion. But we need to respect everyone's opinion in everything that we do. Paul's telling us, rather than look, looking down at those who share non-essential conviction, we should know 
and love everyone and respect them as our brother and sister. All Christians, Paul says, should keep disagreements about non-essential convictions and practices between themselves and God. Instead of using their freedom, their choices, their holier-than-thou attitude to rub it in someone's face, he's calling us to humbly choose not to offend someone else who disagrees with us because we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, Paul closes in chapter 14 with, I believe, is the concluding principle of faith. And in verses 22 and 23, we read, do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Paul says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is, is sin. <clears throat> Friends, the message here is if you have strong faith and fear liberty to partake in certain things, praise God. But have your strong faith before God, not before a brother who will stumble. Paul writes in this, in this verse, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. The reality is not every Christian knows this happiness. There are things in life that may challenge us to give up. There are things that we know we shouldn't be doing that we don't approve of, but we still do. And then we condemn ourselves. It may not be that the thing is necessarily good or bad, but it's enough that haunts our conscience and God is speaking to us saying, you know, it's black or white. There really is no gray. And if we can't do it by faith, it's likely a sin. I mean, Paul's message, you know, it's all about the good news of the gospel. And as we've been going through the book, Paul has explained, uh, and now he's giving some applications. And I tell you, each of us, we need to ask, God, what is it in my life that's hindering a closer walk with you? And, and to say, Father, I want to know the happiness that comes from not condemning myself by what I approve. And friends, this takes faith. Because so often we cling to things that hinder us because we think they make us happy. So many people think the more they have, the happier they'll be. But the reality is the more they have, the more they want. It's all about love. It's all about God, and it's all about Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, we love you and we glorify you. Father, we believe in your almighty power, and we accept your son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. We thank you for this day. We thank you for our lives. Father God, we thank you for our church and, and in all things. This morning, dear God, we ask that you would enlighten us with your word. And as Paul wrote to the Jews and the early Christians in Rome, enable us to understand the core of the gospel. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Father, we pray for the wisdom to respect and accept others regarding our differences and that we would avoid judging others. Lord, we pray that when we are subjected in a manner that you taught, we would submit. And we ask for the courage to stand up and defy ungodly commands. Dear God, help us resist the temptations of the evil one and avoid things that aren't right. And remind us, dear God, that you're a loving God. Remind us to love you with all our heart, all our soul, 
all our mind and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Father, we know this is the obligation that you've taught and that Paul wrote, and we ask it in the precious and powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.